0: Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing, so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't yet joined our wonderful Flywheel Nation community, go to flywheelnation.com, Join in the podcast conversations. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast.
1: Those people who are willing to stick their neck out are also more likely to be creative and innovative. And the very interesting part about this is intuitively it seems very clear that there is a link between risk-taking and innovation and creativity. But the academics have had a very hard time actually proving that. And the area where some of the strongest evidence exists is actually this correlation between the social risk, the the saying the thing that nobody Mm -hmm. else wants Mm -hmm. to say, and the innovation and creativity. So instead of saying, oh, that person who's always raising these points that nobody wants to hear, that person might actually also be the most creative and innovative person on your team. And they're helping you to reach out for the good risks. They're also protecting you from the bad risks. So you really want that squeaky wheel on Mm. your team.
0: Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. I'm really excited to have on the Innova Buzz podcast today, as my guest, strategist and best selling author, Michelle Wooker, who coined the term Grey Rhino as a call to take a fresh look at how we respond to obvious, probable, impactful risks. She founded the Chicago based advisory firm Grey Rhino & Company and is a former media and think tank executive. Her four books include the influential global bestseller, The Grey Rhino, How to Recognise and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore, and the recently released sequel, You Are What You Risk, The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World. If you'd like a peek behind the curtain of the Buzz podcast, go to innovabiz.co forward slash flywheel. There, you'll be able to get your very own digital token, which will give you membership of the Flywheel Nation community, where you'll have direct access to our amazing podcast guests like Michelle, as well as to me, of course. And you'll have access to our short audio program that walks you through the entire Innovabuzz podcasting process. In fact, we want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing and your podcast into a human-centred, relationship-focused growth engine. Now, we minted 30 copies of this digital token. I don't remember now how many there are already gone, but jump in, get your very own token before they're all snapped up. In our conversation today, Michelle talked to me about the link between risk opportunity, and innovation. We talked about understanding your own risk fingerprint and risk perception to help create ideal conditions for innovation. And we talked about the many unconscious influences that affect our decisions in regards to risk. Without further ado, then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Michelle Wooker.
2: Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, all the way from Chicago in the USA, Michelle Wooker, who's a strategist and bestselling author and founder of Gray Rhino and Company. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Michelle. It's a great privilege to have you as my guest.
1: Thank you. It's a great privilege to be here.
2: Sulaima Gurani, who was our guest on episode 517 of the Innova Buzz Podcast, she introduced us and suggested that we have a conversation. So big shout out to Solama.
1: Yes, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh Sulaima and uh, and Hapio, her, her new startup.
2: That's right, yeah, yeah. And we had a, a fascinating chat about that, and I'm still um watching carefully as to where that's headed. Now you've authored two books that I know of, there might be more, but um, th- these are the ones that um, get a lot of attention, I guess, on the internet, books called The Grey Rhino and You Are What You You Risk. And of course, The Grey Rhino is kind of a metaphor, right? So I'll let you explain that in a moment. But before we do that, uh, what's the impact you're making in the world, Michelle?
1: Oh, wow. A lot of people are are thinking and doing things differently. Uh, from day-to-day things like my, my friend who hadn't done his taxes and started started to get the back taxes done, didn't get all the way there, but started, um, to companies changing their strategies, to central banks and governments changing their financial risk policies, particularly uh, across China. And uh, maybe the coolest thing is that the band uh, BTS from Korea, you may have heard of them, <laughs> Um, pretty much the most popular band in the world right now actually uh, used the the gray rhino metaphor in one of their songs uh, about uh, depression and anxiety and uh, the need to deal with it.
2: Hmm. Fascinating. Well, that's pretty wide ranging impact there. And uh, so um, let's let's go back to that metaphor. So explain the metaphor and how you came to that idea of the gray rhino.
3: Sure, well we'll picture,
1: there's a big rhino standing in front of you, his horn is pointing at you and he's stomping the ground and snorting a little bit and he's getting ready to charge at you and you've got a choice of what you're going to do and that's really what the grey rhino is all about. It's about taking a fresh look at the big, obvious, hard to miss thing in front of you and doing a better job at responding. And uh, it's rhino because obviously big and scary with a horn. That part is easy, uh, two tons. And it's gray because if you go to the zoo when you're five years old and you look at a big rhino at the zoo and someone asks you what color it is, you'll say gray. But if you're a grown up and someone has told you that there's a species called the black rhino or the white rhino, then you might call it black or white, even though it's gray, which is a metaphor for for really missing the obvious thing mm. unless you're paying attention. And uh, it's related to two other animals, uh, the elephant in the room, which by definition nobody does or says anything about. And the gray rhino is the thing that people are talking about and some people are doing something about. And you really want to be one of the people who's doing something about it. And the other one is the black swan, uh, which gets a lot of attention in financial mm. markets, but it's so unforeseeable and improbable that it's really hard to do much about it ahead of time. And a lot of policymakers and portfolio managers who lost their clients' money will look at something bad that's happened, like a you know, big market crash, and they'll say, oh, black swan, nobody could have seen it coming. and And it wasn't intended that way by the author. Uh, yeah. You know the author really meant it as a way of of making us think about what an uncertain world we live in. But they used it as a cop out, as an excuse yeah, for something so that so. a lot of people did mm-hmm. see coming and they ignored. And they're trying to convince their, their clients uh, that that it was okay. So so the gray runner is really a challenge. You know the metaphor for the big scary thing coming at you and a challenge to be one of the people who does respond or not. And it came out of my experience writing about geeky sovereign debt crisis things between Argentina and Greece. But the question's just so much bigger than that. It applies to everything from from daily life to the biggest 30,000 foot policy questions to CEOs and business and boards.
3: Hmm.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating metaphor. And um, I mean, the whole idea of this, that we kind of ignore risk, and, and the other animal I thought of was the ostrich that buries its head in the sand so it doesn't see yes, if I can't that's see it,
1: definitely, and the and the see no evil hear no evil, see no evil monkeys too, yeah,
2: that's right, yeah, yeah, if I can't see it, it can't be bad um, the yeah, the idea that um, we miss so much of the obvious it, it, it seems counterintuitive because we're almost programmed to um to ha- to fear everything and which is served us really well as a species because we wouldn't be here if we if we didn't have that fight or flight mechanism built into our brains but it gets in the way so much doesn't it we kind of um, avoid taking risks taking calculated risks and hence um capturing opportunities because of of that fear and yet on the on the other side of that equation there's this we tend to overlook these obvious big risks that are staring us in the face and you know the horns pointing right at us and the, the i don't know what they do the when the, they're, they're scratching paw, their hooves they, yeah yeah they
1: snort <laughs> and they kind of shake their heads back and forth <laughs> I, i've seen a lot of rhino videos i actually went on safari <laughs> but um we didn't have any kind of con- uh, a confrontation like that we found a bunch of sleeping ones and the other ones were far away, hiding behind the grass. So I didn't have that, you know, great moment <laughs> that I wrote about in the book, uh, but I uh, used my imag- imagination just like mm. I, I hope
3: readers do. Hmm. All
2: right. Well, um, why do you think people, some people actually recognize those big risks in advance and, and others either don't recognize them or, or kind of shut them out?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it starts with self-awareness and it's been very interesting to see how people responded to the concept uh, culturally. I mean, you mentioned that it's, it's sort of um, uh, 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 counterintuitive that, you know, we ignore the obvious things. Well, what was interesting is when I first was shopping the book around to publishers in the U S all of these editors came back and said, well, of course we need to deal with obvious things, but they're obvious and we're dealing with them. So, you know, why do we need a book about it? It's not counterintuitive. And I went, oh, man, this is so counterintuitive. They don't, they don't even know it's counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah. And it's this, you know, this sort of, you know, particularly American, but I think some other Western uh, cultures have this same attitude. It's that, that, well, you know, we're on top of things. We know what we're doing. And, you know, increasingly, we're seeing that, that, that people don't feel that way. And then the book came out uh, in uh, in Asia, particularly in in China, and they immediately got what I was talking about. They said there are these big things that you know they're often the kind of wicked problems that are hard yeah. to resolve, and partly because you know people don't like to make the hard decisions. And and one of the reasons that that people often don't pay attention to gray rhinos is that uh, there's something called solution aversion. Uh, it, climate change is a very common example, but you know budgeting or not eating that cheeseburger because you need to go on a diet because your doctor yeah, says so, yeah. so you know those sort of things if you don't like the solution it's a solution aversion then you're more likely to pretend that the problem is not a problem or in in business or policy contexts, if you are benefiting from the status quo and other people are paying the cost well, then you don't want anybody to recognize the problem. It's, it's like tobacco or, you know, climate change, fossil fuels, that sort of thing. Uh, so there's something called manufactured denial, where people who, who don't want to change things uh, really rely on that that human defense m- mechanism of, of ignoring what you don't feel you have the power to do anything about. And they, they really prey on that natural denial. And on the other side, denial we have denial in our in our brains as, as one of our defense mechanisms because sometimes if something feels too big, we can just collapse. It's it's like mm. Elizabeth Kubler Ross writes about the five stages of grief grief, with denial being the first one, as is, is that denial is the defense mechanism so that you kind of let the problem in gradually so that you don't have a nervous yeah. breakdown. And that's fine, but if you continue to deny past the point where it's useful and to the point where it lets a problem turn into a bigger problem and then to a crisis and a catastrophe, then that's the problem. So so being aware of the fact that that you are likely to look away from the obvious thing uh, and that, that it's not your fault. I mean, it's these little gremlins running around mm-hmm. in your brain. But when you're aware of that, you can kind of, uh, you know, whip these gremlins into shape and in a in a business or innovation context, if you're the person who comes up with a solution to the problem or even if you're you're the person who stands up and says the problem's there, you're way ahead of everyone else and you know when you talk about risk taking there are as you as you say calculated risks kind of positive risks you know investing in education uh investing in a startup you know but you know buying you know riskier stocks as opposed to the super safe ones. Um, you know, where you calculate that and you see that the likelihood and the size of the gain is bigger than the likelihood and size of the loss. You know, that's sort of a positive risk taking. And too many people focus way too much on the negative so that they don't take the good risks. Hmm. But there are also people who focus so much on the potential gain. The you know that that stock that your
3: records, cousin's
1: yeah. mechanic told them about <laughs> uh, you know that they forget about the the downside of it and so they don't really uh they don't really estimate the size of things or the probability of things uh as as likely it is and we've certainly been seeing that with a lot of the the dra- day traders who've lost mm. a lot of money in the in the markets getting really really bouncy over the last
3: few months
2: yeah and of course it i mean that stock trading is a great example because there's this herd mentality that comes into play there as well with um we're seeing that really play out with these meme stocks right
1: it's true and actually that that herd mentality is an example of another one of these little gremlins the groupthink uh, gremlin and it's that when you have a bunch of people sitting around the table uh, then it becomes much harder for any one alternative point of view to be heard amongst all the other ones and that's uh even worse if everybody comes from the same profession, the same background, the you know, the same generation, uh the same demographic. And so it's why having a diverse group of people around the table helps you to identify potential red flags and it helps you to have a, a good structured debate and consider in a in a much more thoughtful and reasoned way the you know the potential for gain the potential for loss, the likelihood of gain, the likelihood of loss, and the kinds of things that you can do to uh, to make it more likely that you gain more and lose less. And that, that, you know, you have some plans to pivot if something doesn't quite go the way you want it to.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. The um, The idea of risk being kind of the other side of that coin of um, well, opportunity being the other side of the coin of, of the risk and then how to balance that is, is a really fascinating way to look at this. How do you see um, organisations bringing both that risk awareness of the grey rhino kind of effect and, and then capturing opportunities at the same time, bringing that into their organization. You talked about diversity, their diversity of backgrounds and everything else. And then there's lots of talk about diversity these days. Coming from, I think the, the idea that there have been groups that have been underrepresented. So we talk about, um, race diversity gender diversity ethnicity diversity um, lots of conversation now around bringing more people with um, so-called handicaps um, or so-called disabilities
1: Neurodiversity, yeah yeah I like to
2: call it yeah so it, um so all of those things obviously contribute to different thoughts and people seeing different things or bringing different perspectives to play how do you see balancing that that risk and opportunity equation and what can organizations do to kind of find a really good middle ground there
1: well you know uh, like like gray rhino theory it starts with self-awareness and you know the huge, there's a huge range of of risk cultures at organizations and and i actually use the term risk fingerprint just as i do for individuals which is a a combination of uh it, sorry for for individuals it's your innate personality for a company it would be your your corporate culture mm. and the experiences that you've had i mean you know a company that has gone through a near bankruptcy is going to have a very very different attitude towards risk as a startup during a boom that has tons of venture capital money to to throw around and you know wants to move fast and break things and the third part is the most important one because it's what you have the most control of And that's uh, the the people you surround yourself with, the sort of habits that you have, the self-awareness, the decision-making processes. And you need to look at all three of those together uh, when you're looking at a company and see if that risk fingerprint matches the way it sees itself. I mean, is it a company that sees itself as being innovative? Then if that's the case, who are the kind of people who are working there? Uh, or mm-hmm. if it 's a company that's a, 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 I call them legacy companies, you know the the big traditional company that uh, people mean when they say working for the man quote unquote
3: yeah.
1: uh, where in in a lot of cases the biggest risk is doing things that it's that are different from the different, way we 've yeah. always done hmm. things, and so you know everybody's going to perceive risks very, very differently, and I think the companies that are most likely to be innovative and uh, fast growing are the ones that do have different perspectives, both to identify opportunities and to identify risks. And you've probably heard a lot about, uh, uh, stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. Uh, the, the shareholder ideas that all you care about is, uh, you know, the money that goes to the shareholders and stakeholder capitalism being much broader. But a lot of people miss that stakeholder capitalism can actually be very beneficial to shareholders hmm. uh, because it can help uh, to protect you from from reputational risks. Uh, it can reduce employee turnover. Uh, it can help you to identify uh, different areas of opportunity. It can smooth your relationship with with regulators and and policymakers. Um, so I think it's important too that your company, in addition to having a diverse group of, of people, make sure that that it's got ways to listen to the voices of those different uh, stakeholders, your, your suppliers, you know, the, the community officials, the employees, the customers, the investors, making sure you're getting all those points of view in. And of course, that makes things messier in a certain way. It makes it harder to come to decisions. You need a little bit more time, but ultimately the result is likely to be much better. And one part of diversity that really doesn't get enough attention is risk diversity. Now, everybody's got a different uh, risk fingerprint, which includes their personality. There's a great outfit out of the UK called Psychological Consultancy. It has a tool called the Risk Type Compass that has eight personality types based on mm-hmm. how anxious or calm you are and uh, how methodical or impulsive you are. And so you have the, that innate personality, you have the experiences of the people who are on a team, on the board, and management, and then you have the you know the processes, the deliberate things that they do, to uh, you know to pay attention to things and their self awareness. And so if you look around a room, say a boardroom, or you know look around the the top management meeting, look and see if people have different how different their risk fingerprints are from their personalities and other things. Because something that one person sees as a big, scary danger hmm. is something that someone else is going to say, hey, nobody else is solving this problem. And you know, what's the first question the venture capitalists ask? What's the problem you're solving for? Yeah. You know, And so so that difference of personalities and experiences can actually help you to identify opportunities where other people might not, as well as... Identify some of the the gray rhinos, the red flags ahead of time, so that you've got a good way to respond to them and not get trampled.
2: Hmm. And also, um, I mean, in taking some calculated risks in pursuing an opportunity, there's always going to be some risks there that need to be there need to be contingencies in place for that, right? So it's kind of it's not just okay. I see this as as an opportunity. You might see it as a risk. It's like if it's an opportunity, then there's risks in going down a certain path to pursue that opportunity. And we need to Absolutely. be aware of and even
1: opportunity costs like hey, this opportunity <laughs> looks really interesting. But what are we giving up uh, hmm. for that? And another very important part of it is is risk perception. You know, some people might see something as very risky, and someone else you know, doesn't bother them at all. It's like, you know, if you if you cut your finger with a knife, hmm. one person you know, says, I only want sporks from now on. No, no more knives. And the other person says, oh, well, I'm going to go be a sushi chef. I cut myself and it was no big deal. I am it's, it's fine. And so people react very, yeah. very differently. In a future, the one person sees the, the knife as a bigger risk. The other one sees it as a smaller risk. And that risk perception is something that's so much more slippery than most people think about. And it's not always voluntary. You know, it comes from this this psychology. It comes from the people around you. There's something called risky shift, which is that uh, the decisions of a group are likely to be either much more risk seeking or risk avoidant than you know the sum of the people in the room. That you know, groups really sway everybody's hmm. uh, risk perceptions and and other things like the temperature in the room. If it's really cold then you're going to be more comfortable taking risks there's just scientific studies that show this uh if you it's have spicy food for lunch whether you love spicy food or not it's actually going to make you uh likely to take more risks you know the color in the room the the beat of the music if you want something that's really fast tempo then that's going to help you get your courage up or you know <laughs> take your inhibitions down and so being aware that That so many of us are, are taking risks, are making choices, and we're not even aware of all these subconscious influences that go into that. Well, it's actually kind of scary when you think about it. (laughs) And, you know, and interestingly, knowledge and control are two things that make you, make you feel more comfortable Hmm. with uncertainty and also with smart risk taking. And that's partly because the more you know about a situation, the more likely you are to be able to make the right decisions if things start going the wrong direction.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And be, be nimble or agile enough to react quickly, to keep things on track for the desired outcome.
1: Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. And this, you know, knowledge is is also a big part of, of risk perception. Uh, in You Are What You Risk, I talk a lot about the work of uh, Paul Slovich, who's, You know, the risk perceptions guy. And he talks about all sorts of characteristics of both of the risks itself and your relationship with it as affecting how, how much you're willing to tolerate. And that's, you know, if you have more information, if you feel like you have more control, if you have a choice of taking this risk or not, then you're more likely to be more comfortable with it than if it's something that's just, you know, imposed on you. Hmm. Or something that you don't know much about, that you don't trust the experts about, that the experts don't agree uh, about. So this role of of knowledge and control in risk taking is hugely important.
2: Hmm. It it occurs to me in in this conversation that this is the the idea of the gray rhino and our risk profile individually and as a as a group particularly in in the corporate world is so important in innovation and having lived through kind of the transformation of the photographic industry from film to digital from the inside um, I see that as one really example of there was the gray rhino I was one of the few people that said hey there's a gray rhino and um I was just a young man at the time. I didn't have enough clout, and people didn't didn't listen. They'd I, I use the term there that they behaved like an ostrich in that sense. <laughs> um, and of course, there's lots of other examples of that. There's the um, I mean the other one that's talked about quite a lot is the um, DVD rental industry. Uh, I can't remember. I can't even remember the name of the company now that that disappeared. Netflix. and Well, Netflix. Netflix transformed. Oh Blockbuster
3: before that. Blockbuster, that's yeah, it. And Blockbuster. Net-
1: Netflix has actually been quite uh quite successful in, yeah. in dealing with Grey Rhinos of uh of its own. I remember when uh when streaming was just starting, hmm. they uh they did a lot of thinking were very proactive uh, about that, uh, because people were not gonna want the DVDs anymore. Yeah. And so they uh, you know they developed algorithms to help to recommend what you might want. Uh, they They did a lot of thinking about pricing and and it didn 't go smoothly. There were some bumps along the way mm. and then of course, their gray rhino now is that everybody and their cousin yeah, is, yeah. is doing streaming content and so that 's uh you know that 's a whole other gray rhino that they 're still uh they 're still going through
3: hmm
2: that's right that's um now people like Amazon and um Disney and others that have this established business to build off the back of and and probably have deeper pockets than Netflix might have because they're just focused on that one one particular service
1: and it's it, to be honest it's not great for for consumers I mean on one set hand you you can get smaller bundles of things but you know who wants to have to sign up for seven different yeah. services and I mean it's impossible to keep straight so i think they're they're all going to have to deal with that and what you know hulu started out as a a partnership among all the the networks Hmm. and now they're all going and and spinning off their own things as well and uh you know that's as as somebody who has watched more tv in the last two years than i did in my entire (laughs) life i've been super happy at the quality of of some of these series And, and from around the world things that you wouldn't have had access to but um but you know when you have to sign up for yet another service to get the ones that you want, you just want to throw your hands up and say, <laughs> "All right, already."
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: that's interesting. Is that is that a grey rhino that um, that presents an opportunity? Because obviously, there's a problem there. There's um, if if somebody were to come up with a way, okay, here's a service. You subscribe to this one service, you get access to all those different things. Um, that certainly. Might be a huge opportunity, right? And a grey rhino for each of those industries.
1: Yeah, and I think it's you know it goes to this um, this question of of competition and consolidation. Hmm. I mean, you know, when when they when they get together and offer you a bunch of things, then you don't have to sign into all the all the different options. But at the same time, as competition shrinks, that's not so great for the customers either. And it, you know the the, the worst scenario, worst case scenario is that uh, consumers just say, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something entirely different." <laughs>
3: so it's, it's, it's hard. It's
1: challenging. <laughs> the the, the answer is not always easy. And I think the hardest type of gray rhino to deal with is the one where the answer is you need to let something get trampled. Hmm. And it, it's you know, like say Kodak with their uh, you know the the old film cameras. They were the ones who you know, started the digital uh, photography, and they they didn't want to develop it because they were so afraid of cannibalizing mm. their existing revenue, and so they lost the existing revenue, and they it lost the, the chance on, to mm. follow the new one. And you know, in that case, the the right decision was let the gray rhino trample the old old film, mm. and and that's a case for a lot of companies. I think we're seeing it right now with the, uh, you know, with, with energy. I think there's a lot of resistance some, mm. to some of these new technologies that, uh, you know, that are cheaper and uh, that's, we're seeing that play out with the the energy security crisis.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting the conversation around how do you match that disruptive, getting, taking part in the disruptive technology that clearly has some benefits and has the potential to Uh, take over from the core business how do you match that with protecting your core business until the point where you can switch over so in in essence it's like managing that total portfolio of your income right
3: yeah
1: it's it's very hard and even you know for for any kind of company a company that's that's reached, reached maturity and has grown as much as it's going to grow it becomes A lot harder to create more value going forward. And, and I think that's why we see so much M and A, even though the numbers show that, that mergers and acquisitions are not as likely as people would like to, uh, you know, to end well. You Hmm. see a lot of them, them failing and there's this, you know, there's just a lot of, of mess. And I think there's, there's some, some times where you just have to, um, you just have to say this is as as big as we're going to go and as if we want to grow quickly we're going to have to invest in something else and you know we'll keep this particular service going and i think it might go you know you know pricing is one way if if the, the quantity of the old business that you sold is falling when the price price will go up and you know i think that's where we're going to end up going with fossil fuels it's going to be bumpy getting there but i think it's uh you know i think that's the the only way to uh, to get there
2: yeah yeah and of course it's interesting with that example of the fossil fuels and the the fossil fuel companies how some are clearly putting things in place to make that transition over time and others are just hanging on for dear life to the old old model
1: it's it's hard and hmm. um you know, and I think it, it's, it's not just the, you know, particular company, but you look at the, what I call a risk ecosystem, which is all the outside factors that affect things. And, you know, so that includes, uh, you know, the kind of government safety nets, you know, what mm-hmm. gets subsidized. If you look at the tax system, uh, if, if you're still, you know, taxing things that you want to see more of, well, that doesn't make sense. And if you're mm-hmm. subsidizing things that you want less of, then that doesn't make sense at all what's the education system what's the risk communications system how do you make sure that people can invest in things uh and have a reasonable chance of getting their their money out but that also there is a certain system that will that will tolerate failure because you know who was it that says you know if you're if you're not failing sometimes you're not trying hard enough yeah And you hear about so many entrepreneurs where, uh, you know, investors uh, will take another chance on somebody who's failed in an earlier venture because they know that that person has learned some lessons, but it's very different in different cultures around the world. So if you're evaluating a, a company you need to look at, at all of those those factors around it. And if you're if you're doing a merger or acquisition, saying, you know, innovative companies often get bought by a much bigger company. Hmm. And then there's the question of how do you uh how do you make sure that there are enough ties between the new and the old, but that you don't destroy yeah. the innovative culture. And it's very hard because those kind of companies attract very, very different employees.
3: Hmm.
2: That's right. And and usually it's the bigger company that's the traditional one takes over a little innovative company and they often just get lost in the, in the day-to-day grind, right?
3: Which is, which is sad. Hmm.
2: All right, so how, how do companies then approach this idea of building a risk culture that matches their risk fingerprint, to use your term, and, and at the same time supports innovation?
3: Well, I think
1: the first is to have a very open conversation about risk to, to get a sense of how comfortable your employees are with risk. And that starts with the recruiting process. Uh, I often encourage people to ask the question, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Hmm. Because that, that tells the world so much about you, about what's, what's important to you. Uh, you know, what you're hoping to gain, what you're afraid of, of losing.
3: Yeah. And uh,
1: (laughs) also the question is what's, what's the biggest risk you've, you've ever passed up on. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's very, very important. Uh, I think it's also important to go past stereotypes. There are a lot of risk stereotypes about women who may not get promoted because they're not seen as willing to take enough risks when actually the research shows that there's, there's a very strong, there's a 95% overlap between Men and women in their risk preferences, and the place where there's the biggest disconnect is the less experienced people. That less experienced men are likely to take more risks, and less experienced women are, are going to want to do the homework first. But if you get people at the same level of experience and education, the you know they're very similar risk preferences. Although there's also research that shows that that women tend to do better managing through a crisis. And they're also better at looking back in hindsight and evaluating which decisions were good and which ones not so much and that they can, they can learn from. And, you know, that also goes to, to startups. A lot of, uh, a lot of women founders talk about how they have to bring uh, a male employee into the room with them when they're raising funds, because otherwise the investors will think that they're, they're not willing to take enough, enough good risks. So being aware of the stereotypes, uh, understanding Someone's risk personality and where that puts them. There's there's a great story that uh, that Jeff Trickey told me, the uh, founder of uh, the creator of the Risk Type Compass. He said that there was a company he went to. and This was when the um, Europe's uh, data protection, the GDPR hmm. law, was was just being implemented, and they you know they did personality, the risk risk type uh, tests of the whole team, and most of the people were more carefree and you know more risk seeking. And she came across as something that was considerably more boring. And she was really disappointed. She didn't want to be, I forget if it was prudent or whatever, but she was She was really sad. But then she realized that she was the only one who was going to pay enough attention to make sure that the company was in compliance mm-hmm. with GDPR. And then she felt better about herself. But a lot of careers have clusters of of risk types. Uh, you know air traffic controllers mm. uh, for example or or lawyers, except that the the litigators and the contract lawyers have have different types and so understanding if you've got the the right sets of people if you've got a diverse set of of risk types, and also you look at the, the culture, what does the company reward and what does it punish? Mm. Does the company take feedback in a good way? Um, you know, do, do people, are people aware that if they raise a risk, it's going to get up into the ears and the heads of the people with the power to do something about it? Um, do you have a good, uh, risk decision-making process with all the inputs that you need? And what kind of preparations have you made for those days when maybe things don't work out the way, uh, that you want, you know, do you have a, a you know, an emergency plan a you know, business continuity plan? Uh, we We saw that during the pandemic that uh mm. that a lot of companies had to rework their yeah. supply chains, and this sort of you know just in time is now becoming just in case yeah. and maybe a little bit too much. We're hearing a lot in the states i don't know if you're hearing it there too, mm. but about some companies actually have too much inventory in- okay. now so That's it's right. it's really yes. hard to <laughs> to get it right but to have a really a dynamic approach to risk uh with with gray rhinos in that the final stage action. I always remind people that just doing the action isn't enough. You have to track whether it's working out the way you wanted it to or or not, and then go back and continue to make adjustments and and go back and and just touch base, say once a quarter or whatever the appropriate period is, just to make sure that things are still going the way you want to see if there are other gray rhinos that you are uh, you know putting your blinders on too. So it's a it's a it's self awareness. It's processes. It's uh, it's empathy for the employees and understanding team dynamics as well.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, lots lots of interesting insights there, and just um, you mentioned empathy at the end there, and it's yeah, I think it's important that listening to those various inputs and then building that culture of. Um, Actually, rewarding people if they bring up those risks and listening, and then having conversations around. Well, is is this something we need to take action on, or is this something that um, is less important than this other big grey rhino that's coming from the left? Who's who's actually the father of this this little baby one?
3: <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, um,
1: and you know, empathy is is getting so much the whole concept's getting so much attention in in business these days, and one of my favorite examples for thinking about it is that you and your coworker have to share a taxi to the airport for a business trip. And one of you is the person who likes to get there way too early and have a couple of drinks before you get on the plane. And the other one likes to wait until the last minute. Yeah. And so at workshops, I always ask people, I get a lot of laughs, and, you know, <laughs> how much time do you leave to get to the airport? I, I did one, it was uh, with, with cities across the United States, many of which, you know, like Chicago or, or Houston have uh challenging airport commutes, um, huh. to put it politely, people just laughed so hard. But I said, Okay, how do you and your coworker resolve this? And just, you know, sometimes people will say, Oh, my coworker, he's such a jerk, you know, he wants to do it this way. And when you realize that you've got different reasons for that, I mean, I'll leave less time because I have a, you know, global entry, uh, TSA pre card that lets me go through the through the fast lane or you know there was a time when i i came so close to missing a plane luckily there was a small mechanical issue and they delayed a uh, departure by 15 minutes so i got on it but after that experience i was losing a lot <laughs> more time uh so you know your recent experiences with with bad traffic but but realizing that it's not that someone is just being you know a jerk it's that there are reasons that they are approaching things that way and when you when you Find that empathy as to why each of you is approaching something differently. It's much easier to find a middle ground, hmm. and that also extends to a, a very particular kind of employee who I think is so important to anyone who's concerned with with innovation and creativity. And that's the the squeaky wheel kind of uh, employee the you know the one who takes the social risk of speaking up and hmm. saying you know Hey, are we missing this? Hey, what about that? Or you know the you know the person who goes against gender stereotypes you know the guy who doesn't barrel ahead with risk and says hey have we consulted the experts on this you know those people who are willing to stick stick their neck out um are also more likely to be creative and innovative and the very interesting part about this is you know intuitively it seems it seems very clear that there is a link between risk taking and innovation and creativity but the the academics have had a very hard time actually proving that. And the area where some of the strongest evidence exists is actually this correlation between the social risk, the the saying the thing that nobody Mm -hmm. else wants Mm -hmm. to say and the innovation and creativity. So instead of saying, oh, that person who's, you know, always raising these points that nobody wants to hear, that person might actually also be the most creative and innovative person on your team and they're, they're helping you to reach out for the good risks. And they're also protecting you from the bad risks. And so you really want that squeaky wheel on mm. your team.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I think back to the time when I was in the corporate world and I had a really squeaky wheel on my team. And sometimes people would make light of what, she was saying. So there was some gender stuff there, perhaps. Um, often, some of the things she said seemed weird to me. Uh, and some people would ridicule her. But I I actually learnt very quickly that exactly what you were saying there, that that there was always something to dig deeper on, even if my first reaction was that's that's a really weird thing to say or that's a really weird um, viewpoint to take i would always um, after some time after i learned this i would always dig deeper and, and there was always something there there was always something to learn from from that so i i certainly agree with that i um, that's something i experienced firsthand
1: yeah, and your your comment about the the gender side of also there is some research showing that uh, among the different kinds of risks, I mean, men are more likely to take the the you know speeding or drunk driving kinds of risks mm-hmm. than women are. Uh, but on social risks, on that speaking up, uh, women are actually more likely uh, to do that. And I think it's partly because a lot of women had have, have had a lot more experience with it. I mean, it's it's less and less of a problem as time goes by, but. There have been so many times, particularly having a, a background in finance and policy uh, where women have tended to be underrepresented, you know, I've often been the only woman in the room or just a couple women in the room, and, and women risk either being completely ignored uh, or saying something and everybody ignores it and then two minutes later some guy raises his hand and says the exact same <laughs> yeah. thing and everyone says oh that that's was a great, great idea yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you know women women have a lot more experience with social risk and experience is another very very important determiner of of risk perceptions and success in dealing with the risk i mean it's it's like building building a muscle you know hmm. the more you take certain kinds of risks the more comfortable you are with them, and that is, of course, a double-edged sword. That you can become too, too comfortable yeah, yeah. with it. So that's why you need the people around you with with different risk tolerances for different kinds of of activity. Because even if you are the most experienced person in the world with X type of risk, uh, it's that the nature of it might change, and you can always use that another another point of view.
2: Hmm. Yeah fascinating insights well i think we need to leave people some curiosity that they'll go and get a hold of your books and read your books so it's a good point now i think to move on to the buzz which is our innovation round it's the same five questions i ask of every guest and the idea is that you'll give us some really insightful answers and actually inspire some action for the listener to take to do something awesome today so ready?
1: Sounds good. So the number ready to go.
2: Number one thing anyone needs to be to do to be more innovative
1: to be self-aware particularly mm. when it comes to to risk whether yeah. you think that a risk is positive or negative and to to pay attention to that bias and correct for it.
2: Hmm. yeah and we've had lengthy conversations on that risk and we've touched a couple of times on the uh, the connection between risk and innovation yeah and risk tolerance. So what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas, Michelle?
1: Uh, Believe it or not, walking in the park with my dog, (laughs) particularly with with, with water nearby. And to be honest, it wasn't an easy thing to learn to do. I'm like the, the nose to the grindstone workaholic. It was actually a challenge to learn to just chill out. And that's why I got a dog. That's why I would never be without a dog again. So dog, you know, Whether it's a puppy or older dog, seriously, seriously good for for creativity, for innovation. You know, I I would be trying to write something and it wouldn't come to my head. And so I say, all right, well, my dog would say, all right, lady, get up. We're going to go out and, (laughs) you know, out there is the fresh air. All of a sudden, I would get this breakthrough idea that solved whatever the problem was. And then I say, I can't believe I can come up with that yet. So fresh air walks in the park, particularly next to a large body of water.
2: Yeah, yeah. And what's the role of the water in that?
1: No, it just, well, you know, to be honest, I just read some newspaper article, you know, some study. So, you know, I read it in the newspaper, so it must be true, right? (laughs) But that, you know, that water is actually a really good stress relieving tool, whether you're immersing yourself Mm. in it, or just being near it, it has some sort of magical property, according to this authoritative article that I read somewhere.
2: Okay, I was just wondering whether it has to be flowing water. And I I find this, the sound of flowing water a gentle stream or a fountain or something like that i find that very soothing so that I thought maybe it's something like that
1: it makes sense it's intuitive Hmm. so i'm i'm willing to go with that research just like the research that shows that the chocolate is good for you
2: okay (laughs) all right do you have a favorite resource you use most often
1: you know i'm so bad with favorites. And, and that actually might be, you know, part of the, the creativity and the, and the systems thinking. And, you know, I think the resource, the biggest one is really not one thing, but rather I've got a great network of friends, professional contacts all over the world. And if I take a step back and say, hey, you know, who knows who can help me with this? Who knows more about this? It, I've almost always got either someone to go to or someone who can tell me who to go to. Yeah. And that actually, that uh, sort of social environment is another part of the the sort of uh, risk habits and processes and personal ecosystem that you can develop. Mm. It's, it's just really, really, um, it, it's very, very supportive and it helps you to get the information you need, which helps you to make better decisions, which is really what uh, better risk taking is about.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's really the value of our network. And and you've touched on a lot of things there. A lot of people talk about your net worth is your network um, in the sense of business and in the sense of if you're wanting to make a sale or launch a new product or somebody, you, you have a network that can support you in that. But what you've talked about there is people that can actually be sounding boards, people that can actually help you identify, hey, you're missing that gray rhino that's over there on the left. Or, or people that can say, well, if you know these things, then you can mitigate those risks and, and perhaps make them less risky.
1: Absolutely. Mm. There's no reason to be too proud to have a sounding board. Yeah. It's, you know, to be humble enough to know that you need one yeah. is a superpower.
2: Which comes back to self-awareness, right? <laughs> All right, now what's the best way to keep a a project on track or a client on track if if, um, there's this ever changing environment and there's these new risks coming up from time to time?
1: It's, uh, well, as I said before, you know, if you you make an action, you need to kind of keep on track how it's working out. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, tracking tools, I think, are very important uh, without being too rigid. and and, and really gray rhino theories about this question that, you know, what's the big thing coming at me and how am I doing Hmm. in dealing with it? And, you know, so for me, this is sort of five stage. Are are you denying something? Are you diagnosing it? Do you feel a sense of urgency? Are you muddling through? Are you acting about it? Just doing a, a temperature check as to where you are in that process and to where the other stakeholders are, the people who have the power to help you or the people who have the power to get in the way or the people who are also affected by the same hmm. problem, but maybe don't have enough power to do something about it. So, so just really saying, this is obvious. Am I doing the right thing and how can I do it better? Hmm.
2: And taking, taking the time, as you say, because sometimes we think it's obvious or we make the assumption that everything, everybody understands where we're at. Um, but take their time to say no I'll challenge that assumption I'll check to make sure that all those don't
1: take the obvious for granted (laughs) Um, you know things that seem obvious to you aren't to other people and even if something's you know almost if something is super obvious to you you're even more likely to make a misstep than if something's not obvious because you'll get overconfident Hmm.
2: All right, and finally, for the buzz, the last question: What's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves?
1: It's to look at the to, see, to actually take a look at what's what's in front of them. You know, mm-hmm. ask yourself, "What's my grey rhino?" and then figure out, you know, what you're doing about it and how you can do better. Because you know, as I said, a lot of people think they're dealing with things <laughs> that they aren't, and so the ones. The ones who do i like to call them game wardens you know they they find the (laughs) the rhino the baby rhino when it's super cute and and i i highly recommend baby rhino videos by the way (laughs) Uh, my friends send them to me all the time you know the game warden who you know keeps the baby rhino uh you know tiny tiny and cute and uh so that way when the rhino gets big it doesn't want to charge you
2: yeah yeah (laughs) excellent i love that metaphor (laughs)
1: it's the most amazing metaphor you can and i love that a lot of people will will apply it in their own you know some some of them see the rhino on the horizon behind the grasses Mm. some of them see it right in front of them for some of it's moving fast for some it's moving slow it's you know there are all kinds of different rhinos and it's it's such a fun metaphor and uh they're amazing animals i i was just really amazed uh doing the research and learning about them Mm. so it's uh I highly, highly encourage research into any kind of rhino at all. They're just amazing beasts.
2: Okay, great way to wrap up the buzz round. So, Thanks, Michelle. This has been wonderful. Now, where can people find out more about the work you do and, of course, get a hold of both books, The Gray Rhino and You Are What You Risk, and maybe even get in touch and... Send you some rhino videos if you haven't seen those already. I, love, oh, I love rhino
1: videos. So so my website <clears> is uh thegrayrhino.com. Um it's with the American A, but the the E will get you there. In hindsight, I wish I had titled the book more international <laughs> English, but uh, hindsight is 2020. So thegrayrhino.com. Uh I'm on Twitter at Wooker, W-U-C-K-E-R. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, I try to write about Gray Rhino's uh More frequently than I actually do, but the <laughs> the intention is there. you know where good intentions uh lie but i do I do post a lot uh about uh about relevance articles, try to share some insights, and occasionally do uh, post both about big global gray rhinos but also about some of these behavioral and psychological tools that you can use to do a better job of recognizing your gray rhinos and of uh, taking but be- making better risk decisions and also looking at how these sort of risks, risk, uh, psychologies and cultures play into some of the big, uh, global events mm. and, you know, companies and, uh, and big trends in our society today.
3: Mm. Excellent.
2: And of course, we'll have those links in the show notes so people can click straight through. So, um, what action would you like our listener to take away from our conversation today?
3: Go back
1: and think about the the top big obvious problems in your life. Pick one of them, you know imagine it as a rhino with yeah. the name of it tattooed across its its horn, and uh, ask yourself what you're doing about it, how you can do a better job, and then start really holding yourself accountable uh, to to taming that gray rhino. Mm.
2: Excellent and that's a great action, and of course it it it's a great exercise, I think, to kind of learn more about your own response to risk, your own attitude to risk. And you talked, of course, about being more self-aware of those things as we look at those problems, those gray rhinos that that are there either behind the grass or right in front of us. Absolutely. Finally, Michelle, who else should I get on this show and why?
1: Oh my goodness. Well, uh, one is my good friend, April Rennie. who's got a book called, uh, Flux, uh, mm-hmm. that came out quite recently. Um, so definitely happy to, happy to put you in touch with her. Uh, we've, we've actually done a bunch of podcasts together because this idea of you know, flux and uncertainty is so closely related to a lot of the work that, that I do with, with risk and uncertainty and dealing with a world where you, you don't have as much control as,
3: uh, as you would like to.
2: Excellent. Well, we'll get an introduction to Abel from you and uh, um, yeah, i will have to, that's another book to add to my list to read. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> and thanks so much for my sharing pleasure. your time and your insights and those rhino stories with us today, Michelle. It's uh, been a pleasure to speak with you. I've really enjoyed the conversation and learnt quite a bit as well about um, particularly that kind of risk fingerprint as you called it and and really being aware of our own attitudes to risk in different environments and then how the organizations that we're part of how they come together and treat risk as well so thanks for that and let's thanks
1: for inviting me it's been a real pleasure talking with you
3: as well
2: thanks
0: I hope you enjoyed that really engaging and informative conversation with Michelle and took something away from her episode. So, as you listen to this right now, think about the big, obvious problems that may be confronting you in your life right now. Pick one of them. Imagine it as a rhino with the name of that problem tattooed right across its horn in big, bold red letters. And ask yourself... What am I doing about that? How can I do a better job? How can I start to really hold myself accountable to taming that grey rhino? Michelle's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Michelle Wooker. That is M-I-C-H-E-L-E-W-U-C-K-E-R all lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Michelle Wooker. That's Michelle with just one L. You'll also find contact information there, of course, for getting in touch with Michelle, as well as links to the Grey Rhino website, to Michelle's books, her social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. Now, if you've listened this far into the show and you love this conversation, and why wouldn't you have loved a conversation about grey rhinos, and you think this conversation would be useful to one other person, be brave enough to share the conversation with that one other person. I'm sure they'll be grateful. Also, make sure to get the episode bookmark token at innovabiz.co forward slash bookmarks. For the cost of just a cup of coffee, you can have your very own permanent record of this show, your very own permanent audio file that stays there forever regardless of what we do with the podcast. Now, 50% of all revenue from that episode token will go directly to Michelle as the guest of this episode, and the other 50% will go towards supporting the show. Think of it as a way to support Michelle And tell her that you really loved our conversation and her episode about the grey rhino. Michelle suggested that we have a conversation with April Rennie, author of Flux, and with Genevieve Theers, co-founder and CEO of Entertainment, on future InnovaBuzz podcast episodes. So, April and Genevieve, keep an eye on your inboxes for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Michelle Wooker. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode. It will help us to make the podcast better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz and pick your preferred platform now remember to to go to innovabuzz.co forward slash flywheel to collect your unique digital token which will give you membership of the flywheel nation community where you'll have direct access to our amazing podcast guests as well as to a short audio program that walks you through the entire innovabuzz podcasting process tune in again to the
2: next episodes of the innovabuzz podcast where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be
3: awesome and keep innovating.